something beside me A light to the kerosene And the places aren't real anymore And the faces don't say anything In the silent light Of the Welcome to Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good, and today we have a very special episode for November 22nd, 2023, which is, of course, the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination. I'm happy to announce that, to honor this occasion, today's episode is being made available to everyone, brought to you by the new film series, Four Died Trying, which premieres today on Apple TV. You may have noticed that in the 1960s, if you were hoping for a more peaceful and just world, uh, everybody that you wanted to try to pursue these things and every major public figure who was working in that area, well, they, they seemed to die. I'm talking about John F. Kennedy, who months before he was assassinated in November of 1963, uh, gave a speech calling for world peace, essentially, and disarmament and reexamining our attitudes about the Cold War. Uh, and so he was not long for this earth, uh, but quite a speech from the president of the United States. In 1965, early in 1965, like February, uh, Malcolm X was assassinated, and he had gone on quite an intellectual, spiritual journey himself, uh, from being a, a hoodlum uh, in his younger days to being in the Nation of Islam uh, after he went to prison, and then becoming this very you know, dynamic and polarizing uh, critic of white people and white society, eventually mellowing out a little bit and becoming more of an advocate for peace and someone who believed that in the U.S. a peaceful revolution really was possible. And uh, I think other people thought it might be possible too, so they killed him for it. He was also working to uh, bring together the Pan-African movement, basically, uh, to connect the plight of Africans suffering from neocolonial domination to the plight of Black people in America who have been suffering for centuries uh, under uh, slavery, Jim Crow, and just general racism in the United States. So his death also was a, was a tragedy. Um, Martin Luther King is killed in April uh, of 1968. And in 1967, he had, uh, at the suggestion of Robert Kennedy, he was going to lead uh, a poor people's march to Washington. That would be a multiracial group of people demanding an end to Vietnam War spending and uh, demanding that that money be redirected to peaceful programs to improve American society and deal with injustices in American society. He was killed, and a few months later, Robert Kennedy was killed in June of 1968, uh, and he was looking to win the White House on a platform of peace and economic justice and racial justice, and he also wanted to investigate who really killed his brother, President John F. Kennedy. So these four people, they all died trying. And that's why the name of this series is Four Died Trying. The film series, Four Died Trying, explores the extraordinary lives and calamitous deaths of President John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert F. Kennedy. 
filmed primarily from the vantage point of their children, close associates, and witnesses to their assassinations, the series considers the turning each of these men were making in the last year or so of their lives. Were they embracing ever broader conceptions of the struggle for peace, social change, and economic justice? And what forces may have stirred in opposition? What lessons do their lives and deaths hold for us today as the world once again trembles on the cliff of an uncertain future? Six years in the making with nearly 100 interviews and counting, Four Die Trying is scheduled for release in November 2023 to help commemorate the 60th anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination. For today's very special episode, we are lucky to have with us two illustrious JFK assassination critics. These men are luminaries, really. I'm talking about Professor Peter Dale Scott and our Devil's Chess Club co-host, David Talbot. Peter Dale Scott is the author of many books, including Deep Politics and the Death of JFK and Dallas 63, the first deep state revolt against the White House. He is peerless in this field, essentially inventing parapolitics and the deep politics approach to understanding the history and politics of U.S. empire. David Talbot is the author of Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, and The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, The CIA, and The Rise of America's Secret Government. Peter and David have both written far too many books and articles for me to list here, but I do recommend their body of work to anyone interested in these subjects. And as you see here on the right, uh, I have also written a book which deals with the JFK assassination. So we put JFK right on the cover. Uh, the book is American Exception, Empire in the Deep State, and it is a scholarly account of how the U.S. oligarchs made this country into a global empire in part by using deniable clandestine violence to make sure that they could prevail when they couldn't win through lawful or democratic means. Finally, we are joined by our youngest member, Bryce Green, who is in graduate school at Indiana University and who writes regularly for FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. I hope you enjoy the show. And deepest thanks again to Four Died Trying. Check out the film by going to the fourdiedtrying.com website. Bryce Green, it's great to have you here on this very uh, somber 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Uh, David Talbot, thank you so much for joining us again. My pleasure. Thank you. And we are very privileged and honored to have Peter Dale Scott with us. Uh, I've, in the introduction, I listed some of his accomplishments, which are only uh, a brief uh, fraction of them. But Peter, it's wonderful to have you here and for you to take the time uh, to speak with us. Well, I'm looking forward to this. You're the right, the right kind of people to have this dialogue with. Thank you. And Bryce, uh, you are going to Peter uh, has written a good bit about this over the years, and David and I both have new articles. You're going to function as something of a moderator here. Uh, so I, I, I thank you for that. And uh, we're going to start this off with a specially selected quote uh, from Peter, appropriately, from his book, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK. All right. Yeah. And this quote, I think, is pretty much sums up the ideas that we've all been working with about trying to understand the American system, the American oligarchy. Um, it says, quote, I believe that a true understanding of the Kennedy assassination will lead not to a few bad people, but to the institutional and parapolitical arrangements which constitute the way uh, we are systematically governed. Uh, and so this quote has really been uh, important when we talk about 
the ways people have abused the idea of a uh, conspiracy and taken uh, ideas into all sorts of directions, trying to point to one specific individual or cause for all these parapolitical uh, deep events. Uh, but you take a different approach. Uh, and while you're credited as, you know, bringing the term deep state into the American context, uh, you sense, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there we go. You've since uh, uh, sort of taken a step back from that term and that uh, mode of analysis. Well, so the term you, took, a, took its own tr voyage away from me. It's, it's, <laughs> the way it's used is not the way I intended it. Right. Well, can you talk about your evolution from, well, first your understanding of the Kennedy assassination uh, early on to your use of the term deep state to your, you know, your current disavowal of the term. How has your views on what caused uh, the Kennedy assassination and what it means, how has that evolved over the years? Well, to pick up from the sort of bits you mentioned about me, yes, at the very beginning, I, and I was not alone in this, um, felt that uh, to pin it on a, somebody they were masking as an outsider, Lee Harvey Oswald, that nobody was interested in, we didn't know then that the CIA had opened a file using his name just eight weeks before the assassination, which was a very important uh, ingredient in uh, justifying from the CIA's point of view their role in the cover-up. Um, so I didn't like the idea that it was just some marginal kook. And the same they did the same with Ruby, by the way, that Ruby was the, uh, a, a, also a kind of a loner and that was, that was the Achilles heel of the Warren report because Ruby was very obviously clued in with organized crime at a high level. He was clued in with the Dallas police and he was clued in with the FBI. So uh, he was not in any sense a loner. And that's where my, I got the idea that I could do something. And the way my ideas have evolved is towards and beyond the quote that's up here on the screen because I thought, no, that we had to look within the uh, political establishment of this country for an answer as to what really happened. And I said in my, my uh, book, Deep Politics, that was what, uh, 1993, um, that, uh, that I was, first of all, I was not gonna try and solve the assassination, but just, look at what it tells us about America. It told me a great deal about America. And then I ended by saying, I blame it on the deep political system. And then you, Bryce, uh, used the word system again. And in this quote here, I'm talking about the way we are systematically governed. And the way I think now about the assassination, I, um, I, I don't want to use the word system. And we are not governed systematically. Uh, the other word, which I think explains it much better, uh, it's already come up, is oligarchy. Um, with, you know, I think all governments really are, but especially right now with so much private wealth absolutely overshadowing public budgets and determining the use of public budgets. So uh, private wealth is determining how we are governed. Um, and uh, I, uh, I had to change a book I'm proofreading to say that I, I was talking about St. Augustine and the Roman deep state because there was a 
the equivalent back then. But I said I would now talk about the Roman netus system. And I would that's the word which I've invented, which I'll throw up to you as a better way of thinking what here, because the Kennedy assassination was the result of a disagreement at very high levels inside the American establishment. And we have to begin with that idea that uh, some people were for it and some people were also against it. Um, if I say all governments are oligarchies, that doesn't mean that America is just like any other government. The, the oligarchs who created the Declaration of Independence, which was a great step forward for the world, and the Constitution, which embedded slavery into the American way of government, um, they, they were oligarchs, but they, had a, a, they were oligarchs with a vision. And I really do, D David and I, we really disagreed about this once, and David was essentially right that I was saying good things about the founding fathers, and he reminded me that uh, there was a dark side to them. That's been true of this country ever since. But uh, we are, uh, I would say, do we do a better job of government up until recently than most governments in the world? But it is not so much a system as a way of managing competing systems. And uh, all was uh, forces from below that I identify with, recently unions coming back in this country, versus forces from above, the, for the use of wealth and, if necessary, the use of violence. Uh, and we risk seeing that again. But America has survived because it's it's um, it acts out its risks and it changes. And other countries that are more tightly governed, Switzerland is a model of government, but you don't get much change there because precisely because it's there. There really is a system there in America. We have to start with this idea: is a, an oligarchy without a system? But I would add to that: it's a democratic oligarchy with hopes of uh, affecting the oligarchy. So does that make clear my difference from my all my books? The American Deep State, that's the, the term. I think the way I used it was important because I wanted to emphasize what the Turks wanted to emphasize when they invented the term, which is that the state publicly is fighting violence, criminal violence, but secretly it's using criminal violence. And that was the point I wanted to make by using the term deep state. And then somebody else came along and got the national media to focus on him. And he wrote about the American deep state and erased the whole idea of the criminal participation that, that neutralized the idea and made it public, uh, publicly knowledgeable, useful. I, yeah, Mike Lofgren came along and he first sort of neutered it by taking off the uh, by by taking out the criminal part of it. Uh, but and Bill Moyers had him on his show talking about the deep state, and it was largely on point. But for the he removes the the high crime part of it, he just doesn't want to go there. Although he does say like it probably the CIA and the FBI chicanery is ultimately you know a function of corporate power. But then he won't get into these other areas. And if that wasn't bad enough, then Donald Trump comes along. <laughs> And does much, much more violence uh, to your 
to your life's work, uh, which has been something I've put a lot of time into. So we're both probably not happy with Mr. Trump. Um, David, would you care to respond to uh, Peter's idea of the deep state and talk about how his work has perhaps influenced your own uh, understanding of the Kennedy assassination? Well, Peter and I go way back, and uh, I've told this many times to Peter in many ways. He's the inspiration mentor uh, for my work. He, he doesn't want to get, take credit for all of it. We have some disagreements, but uh, Peter was, I think, uh, ahead of his time on the Kennedy research, and he influenced me greatly. Um, that said, I don't think there's much it's a difference without a distinction or a distinction without a difference. I think Peter uh, sees the crime largely the same way that I do, frankly. Yes. I think there were, there were certain uh, agents, uh, certain men who took aggressive action against Kennedy. Uh, Alan Dulles is my chief suspect, former uh, CIA director, but there were a number of others. But I make pains. I take great pains in my book. I have a whole chapter dedicated to what C.R.A. Mills, the sociologist at Columbia University, called the power elite in his book. Um, Dulles was no rogue. None of the people who moved against Kennedy were rogues in the sense that they did it without backing. They did it with top-level backing. Yeah, I agree with Peter that it was assist, uh, the government, Kennedy's government broke in two. I think we have to understand it that way. That's why Dallas took place. The government broke in two over, I believe, the Cold War in general. That was the flashpoint. Vietnam, yeah. Cuba, uh, Berlin, these were all major differences within the national security world. I think Kennedy, as president, was deathly afraid, as Teddy Kennedy told me, his brother and Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter, of because he was a student of history, of the superpowers stumbling into a nuclear holocaust, which we nearly did mm -hmm. uh, over Cuba in 1962. That was Kennedy's greatest fear. And as we know, he opened the back channel to the Soviet Union, to Nikita Khrushchev in Moscow, as well as the Castro, yeah. because he was afraid that the superpowers and he was being advised by his top generals and his uh, CIA people to actually confront, uh, you know, Soviet Union and Cuba over uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. We nearly mm -hmm. had a nuclear war because those people, his top advisors, were all urging him to take action, which would have resulted in a nuclear conflagration. Yeah, at the very beginning, they wanted to hit Kennedy send 60,000 troops into Laos, a tiny little, totally right. peaceful, landlocked, uh, small area in Asia. So again, again, Kennedy stood down. He chose the path, the path of peace when his hardliners, when his national security advisors were telling him to choose the path of war. I interviewed Robert McNamara, his secretary of defense, for my book. He later called me up and said, I got it right. Kennedy intended to withdraw all U.S. troops after he was safely reelected in 1964. That was his intention. He signed a national security memorandum to that effect, drawing down the troop level in, uh, in Vietnam. He intended clearly, I think, to uh, say this is your war to the South Vietnamese. You fight it, not us. That was his intention. 
in I Cuba agree. the same way. He wanted to demilitarize Cuba. He wanted to de uh, tone down the, the conflict with the Soviet mm -hmm. Union. And that's why he was killed, because he wanted to end the Cold War. Now, was it just ideological? No. As President Eisenhower warned us about, the military-industrial complex had grown into a huge economic force and technological force in this country. There was literally billions of dollars being made by the people around it. So Kennedy was also threatening that racket, I call it. It was a huge racket. It controlled the economy in so many ways. It still does. Come on. It still, still does. Ukraine, yeah. Gaza were pouring weapons and, and ammunition into those countries. Uh, and Biden crows about it. President Biden crowed about it in his address yeah. to the country about all yeah. the profits we're making from this obscene war in Ukraine and now Gaza. So, uh, look, there, it's a very simple. I think Peter and I agree that Kennedy was killed for a reason. Uh, his government broke in two over the issue of the Cold War. There were other issues, too, other dividing lines. He yeah. sent troops to the South, by the way, to enforce integration in Alabama and Mississippi. So this, uh, this canard that he was uh, not responsive on civil rights is not true. It's not historically true. That, too. The troops slow walked to Mississippi when he ordered them down there to that campus. It was blowing up over the integration issue. It was people are dying because of the riot on the, uh, on the campus when Kennedy sent troops there right after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and those troops slow walked because they were, I believe, uh, treasonous. Uh, they were defying the president's orders. And he again confronted Governor Wallace, who stood in the doorway at Alabama over integration. So that, too, was another flashpoint uh, in his administration. I think again and again, if you read his speeches, the peace speech he delivered at American University in June 1963, his speech about integration and race that he delivered from the White House. Uh, One day later. Yeah. Just hours after uh, he confronted Governor Wallace in Alabama are remarkable. Even today, those speeches would be remarkable. He asked us in the peace speech to empathize with our enemies in the height of the Cold War. That's remarkable. So yes, was he killed for ideological reasons? Yes, they had to get rid of him. But he's also threatening their uh, the racket, the money that we're making. I do want to say that I think that's a brilliant summary and uh, that I could basically agree with all of it. I would like to clarify that we shouldn't look for a reason why Kennedy was killed. Kennedy was killed by a coalition of people who had divergent reasons, uh, Southern reactionaries, for example, who wanted to preserve uh, the uh, Jim Crow state. That was a, that, that motivated some people, uh, but the, um, I think the, you know, some people say we should talk about the petroleum military industrial complex because I think the main reason um, that, uh, well, maybe at the very beginning they really were worried about the Soviet Union, but when you're getting into the 50s, the army uh, helped defend petroleum assets abroad. By that by that time, America had a petroleum-based economy, but most of the petroleum came from elsewhere. 
And the United States would do whatever it took to make sure that they kept control of that. That explains the Iraq war. It explains our going into Afghanistan because uh, Chevron and Exxon had started to develop very expensive oil resources in Kazakhstan. And you wanted to have an army nearby to make sure that they didn't get nationalized away uh, just as soon as they were built. So I agree with all of that, but I would add one more technical thing. I think the fact that Kennedy was could not trust his own bureaucracy to deal with the Soviet Union, so he started doing it privately and secretly, and I believe that was enough to trigger people who might have been on the fence to say, no, uh, we have a rogue here, and the rogue is the president. He's doing things that uh, are not by the book. And it was true, they were not by the book because the book was a, a slanted book. I, um, I agree with that. Uh, let me add, insert quickly. Uh, I think uh, he made a fatal error, JFK, when he appointed Republicans to his cabinet, when he appointed people he disagreed with to his cabinet. And he did that largely on the advice of his father, Joseph Kennedy, the patriarch uh, of the family. And, uh, he'd won by such a slim margin against Nixon in 60. His father advised him, for continuity's sake, to keep J. Edgar Hoover, fatal, I think fatally, at the, at the FBI, and also mm -hmm. Alan Dulles at the CIA, and Republicans like, uh, like Dillon uh, at uh, Secretary, Secretary of Treasury. He was an Eisenhower man. They wanted to hold these people over, Joseph Kennedy did, for the sake of political stability and continuity. I think, mm -hmm. as Peter suggested, it was a fatal error because these people later formed a government against Kennedy within the government. Alan Dulles, when he's fired as CIA director, goes home to Georgetown, as I write in my book, and he essentially uh, formed a government in exile. The top people of the CIA continued to report to him, not to John McCone, who was the political appointee of JFK to replace him at CIA. People like James Angleton, a very important figure, head of counterintelligence for the CIA, Richard Helms, who later became head of the CIA, reported directly to Dulles. They treated him as if he were still running the spy agency. So I want to make that point. And the second point I want to make, again, is Dulles was no rogue, but it takes men of great executive action to take action against the president. It takes men of courage. And, and prowess and stature. And you don't often get that. Dulles was one of those men, like Cheney and Rumsfeld in the Bush administration, who took action, I think disastrously so, against Iraq. He took action, Dulles, against JFK. But he only did that, and throughout his career, he only did it when he felt there was a consensus of power. He, he and his brother, John Foster Dulles, who was uh, Eisenhower's Secretary of State, were very active, for instance, in the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. That mm -hmm. is a private organization where people essentially work at U.S. policy, men of great power and influence, ahead of time, before the U.S. government adopts those policies. I think uh, Dulles talked about foreign assassination, policies. foreign mm -hmm. policies. I think Dulles talked about whether or not they should move against Kennedy and kill Kennedy with a number of people who he, of great power and influence, he would never have moved against Kennedy on his own. And I think those people are, uh, 
include the bankers, by the way, he met with, according to his own daybook, before the assassination. Uh, the Rockefellers, a uh, uh, man named John Simpson, who was head of the uh, financial committee for Bechtel, the huge uh, engineering company out here in San Francisco that gave us Casper uh, Weinberger and George Schultz in the Reagan uh, administration. They were both executives there, very powerful, uh, privately held uh, intelligence connected company. So I think people had to put up the money for Dallas. I think that should be the next area of investigation. Well, Dallas. Can I respond? Because yeah. the very fact that we agree on so much helps to clarify where we disagree. And I certainly agree that Alan Dallas played a very important role in the assassination. That doesn't mean, however, that uh, he was the, I've always been, you know, the. The, the role of, uh, the, we have a, a kind of deep state aspect not mentioned in my book, which is the interplay between army intelligence and private industry, the army intelligence reserve. And I think it's easily demonstrable once you know the facts that the army, there were two army reserve intelligence units in Dallas. One of them was very unusual it was geared to uh, really supporting the petroleum industry and learning on the surface of it. They were tasked with uh, assessing petroleum assets in the Soviet Union, which they were beginning to realize might be perhaps among the, the largest in the world. But so Alan Dallas played a role with others. The role I think is quite clearly defined that the CIA was primary in the in making sure that it would be blamed on a lone assassin and maybe in serving up the lone assassin designate the uh, the designated uh, patsy was lee harvey oswald um, and helms perjured himself to the warren commission it's not 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 unusual for Helms. He perjured himself a decade later to Congress on the issue of Chile. Um, so, and of course, he felt justified because it was his duty to protect the sources and security of the CIA. So, I'm sure he felt he was breaking the law, but observing a higher law, which was CIA law. Um, it, but that was crucial. The fact that the, that the designated uh, a Patsy that they had opened a file on could be argued that they were not the primary people because wouldn't, if you really didn't want to, if you wanted to be at arm's length from the assassination, you might have picked somebody that you, you really had nothing to do with. And the CIA very visibly did have something to do with Oswald once, for those who knew. Um, so it's a larger coalition. Um, I, I don't think we should get into a few bad eggs in reverse theory that if, if Hoover hadn't been there, if Dulles hadn't been there, Kennedy wouldn't have been assassinated. No, I think the, the conflicts between oligarchs, um, is, and I, how, how do I classify the military? That's always a problem. But um, it was a conflict between oligarchs that is very deep rooted in this country and can be summed up by the pre-war conflict between the Council of Foreign Relations, which 
saw international finance as central to American well-being and the National Association of Manufacturers, which represented domestic American industry. And this fundamental binary system between a foreign-focused economy and a domestically-focused economy, it led, among other things, to the creation of John Birch Society, because 11 men, men, uh, formed the John Birch Society, and nine or 10 of them had been prominent officers in the National Association of Manufacturers. It was an old conflict acting up, and we still have that. Um, and I think that the, um, uh, I don't want to make it, well, you know, I, I, I'll stop there. Well, I, I this idea of there being multiple factions at play, I think is important in understanding not only the Kennedy assassination, but also politics in general, that these these different factions, uh, you know, they understand the needs and the, uh, I guess, priorities of each other. And sometimes they're in conflict, but sometimes they're in lockstep. And right. uh, as, as you say, uh, as you write about Peter, and as you elaborate on in uh, Devil's Chessboard, uh, David, uh, these institutions can rely on each other to behave in uh, predictable ways. Uh, and that seems to be relied upon to carry out the assassination and to cover it up. And one of the major institutions uh, that is responsible for covering up the assassination, of course, is the national media, uh, which you know is responsible for shaping public opinion and uh, defining what the acceptable bounds of discourse are. Uh, and uh, David, you recently wrote about this in your uh, column at the Kennedy Beacon uh, about why the media has been so steadfast in uh, refusing to uh, tell the truth about the Kennedy assassination. I mean, you hear reports here and there. You you know, you see a Paul Landis story becoming big for a little bit. You see, uh, you know, Rolling Stone will publish an article or or what have you. But overall, the dominating public opinion from the talking heads that we see, from the editorial boards that we see, is that the, the, the lone gunman theory is really the only way to go. And so this assassination could not have been carried out if the national security state and the, uh, the political structure that undergirded it didn't, could not rely on the media. And, and you have a great quote here uh, from your piece, and uh, I'll uh, read it here. It says, quote, in recent months, Peter Baker, the Times chief White House correspondent, has covered two important developments in the Kennedy case, the Landis revelation about the magic bullet and the discovery that the CIA was secretly reading Oswald's mail before the Kennedy assassination. Despite this flirtation with the truth, the New York Times and the rest of the mainstream media remain largely wedded to the official version of Dallas. Last week, I was asked by the Times opinion editor to write a JFK assassination op-ed, but the newspaper rejected my measured article. Quote, the piece is rich and fascinating, end quote, the editor emailed me. Uh, but I don't think I can move forward with it. The fascinating Mobius strip of truth and conspiracy is very tricky for the Times opinion, end quote. Uh, so, David, what did you mean by that quote? What is this saga of you being invited to write an article for the New York Times, the American paper of record? And what does this say about our institutions uh, that this has managed to go under the radar for so long? And uh, you can talk a little bit about your reporting on that front. 
Well, you're right, Bryce. Uh, very frustrating, very, very 60 years later, dispiriting. Uh, that quote, by the way, was from my editor at the time, it's not from me. Uh, so just so you know, about a month ago after Senator Feinstein died, I wrote an op-ed that they loved uh, the Times and they ran it. So, you know, I had a good relationship with this editor. And when she uh, called me up or contacted me and asked me to write this, I was quite delighted because I thought it was another sign that the great New York Times was finally moving towards the truth about Dallas. And then they rejected it. Uh, I've, look, we, we know that Alan Dulles, among others, in the national security world was very close to Times executives, to Times editors. I write about this in the Devil's Chessboard. Uh, there's a long history of this, of the New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsweek, uh, the networks, TV networks, all being too close to uh, the heads of the Pentagon and the CIA and, and the NSA, FBI, you name it. Uh, I thought this would begin to change after 60 damn years. Um, these people are all dead. Bill Harvey, who I sued the State Department and the CIA under the Freedom of Information Act to find his travel records, was spotted by his deputy flying from Rome, where he was stationed at the time, to Dallas beforehand. Uh, Bill Harvey was head of the CIA's assassinations operation. So do you want to know if he was in Dallas before Kennedy was killed? By the way, he hated the Kennedys ideologically. He hated them over Cuba and other things. And they put him in Rome, the CIA, to protect him, his career. He, the Kennedys wanted to fire him. So they refused, a judge in Washington refused to release his travel records. Those are some of the 4,000 documents that are still being withheld by illegally. illegally against the 1992 JFK Records Act passed by Congress. President Biden has allowed the CIA largely to withhold those records still. Uh, some six years later. It's an outrage. The press should be up in arms about this. The New York Times should be editorializing about it, should be uh, demanding uh, that they uphold the law and release these records. But instead, the New York Times is going along with the cover-up. Sadly, I think the New York Times, as the official newspaper and the Washington Post, and owned now by Jeff Bezos, who's too close to the CIA, has major contract with the CIA, uh, doing the cloud for them, the cloud data, uh, Amazon does that, um, is, it's outrageous. The, the, the media essentially operate as a propaganda arm too often of the national security state and the imperial view of America overseas. Um, so was the New York Times going to budge on this? I hope so. I, I, I really hope the New York Times would finally budge on this. As you say, Peter Baker, because it's Jefferson Morley, a friend of Peter's and mine, Jeff Morley has been at this for a number of years, a JFK expert. He got Peter Baker to cover those stories, including the Oswald story about the CIA opening his mail. They claimed for years that Oswald was off the radar. Well, that's complete hooey. Uh, they knew about Oswald. He was essentially, I think, uh, a, a false defector to the Soviet Union, brought home with great ease with a Russian wife uh, by the U.S. government, and made to be the fall guy, the patsy, as he as he said, uh, for the crime. 
and he knew he was being set up, and then he was conveniently silenced uh, for all time by Jack Ruby. By the way, when I interviewed Frank Mankiewicz, who was an aide to Senator Robert Kennedy, they said when Robert Kennedy, as Attorney General, saw the travel, the phone records in the days before Ruby killed Oswald, who he was calling, it read like the Rackets Committee witness list. Yeah. Bobby Kennedy was head of the racket or was chief counsel for the Rackets Committee that investigated organized crime in the 1950s. So all the people Ruby was talking to before he shot Lee Harvey Oswald were gangsters. And uh, that's the world that he came from. So uh, Bobby Kennedy, I, as the journalist Jack Newfield told me, and was a friend of Bobby's, put it together, put Dallas together within hours of what happened with that computer brain of his. He knew exactly who killed his brother. And he would have reopened the case if he had not himself been assassinated in 1968. Okay. I just wanted, because it's come up now that the, the CIA was reading Oswald's mail, that sounds as if there was some intimate relationship there. In fact, it was part of a program that all the mail that went to or from the Soviet Union, everybody's mail was being read. So it was not indication of an interest in Oswald per se. It's just that, I mean, there are other things that are very, uh, uh, very convincing evidence, and you've just mentioned a good many of them. But the fact, mere fact they're reading the mail means almost nothing because it was the, the, the fear of the Soviet Union and it was a reality. The Soviet Union did have agents in America. The Communist Party was getting direction in America from the Soviet Union. And the, Hoover knew this very well because the man who was carrying the messages back and forth was a double agent reporting, working for the Communists and for Moscow, but he was a double agent reporting also to the FBI. So. There was no yeah. secret there. Then why didn't the CIA come forward in 1963, right after the assassination, say, oh, yeah, we knew who Oswald was. We were reading his mail. And the, instead, they said he was off the radar. They didn't know about yeah. him. All right. I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to sound like a fink here, but you have to realize that uh, what's sometimes called Johnson's pretext for getting people on the Warren Commission, which is we have a very dangerous situation here because it's, there are people in this country who are going to make it look as if either Cuba or Russia or both were behind the assassination. We have to stop this. And uh, the, the famous memo from uh, the Attorney General at the time, we have to persuade the public that it was a lone assassin. <coughs> Sincere people could believe that. And I myself am not too condemning of the reasons for the lone assassin theory. I'm against it because it's it's a lie. But uh, it wasn't a lie done to with the sole purpose of uh, pr protecting uh, the real killers. It was, I think, the idea that we had to phase off a popular demand for reaction against Cuba was very likely. That's a very key uh, thing. I agree with you, Peter, by the way, about that. The second part of this plot against Kennedy was meant to be a pretext for a war with Cuba. 
Right. Because they wanted to blame Oswald and say he was a communist agent working for Cuba or working for the Soviets. They wanted to. They did. The state of Texas was proceeding with a case of a, against an international conspiracy. It was President not a possibility. It was a reality. Yes. So President Johnson, in that one respect, and, and liberal uh, journalists like I have Stone and others who supported this view that he was not a communist agent, was not a communist conspiracy, were heroic, you could say, because LBJ as president stopped a war breaking out with Cuba over the Kennedy assassination. Mm -hmm. And he got the Warren Commission. He's, he convinced Earl Warren to serve on the commission, as you and Aaron know, because he uh, invoked the specter of a nuclear holocaust if he didn't. If they didn't tempt down the storm, but that it was a communist conspiracy. So I believe you talked earlier about uh, the ruling class or the ruling elite, the power elite, whatever you call yeah. them, fragmenting over the Kennedy uh, administration. I believe that one element of this did want a war, did want the Kennedy assassination to yes. spark a war. And oh, another said right. this was disaster. Let's not have a war in Cuba that could become a nuclear confrontation. I'll give you your war, Johnson effectively said, but it'll be thousands of miles away in Vietnam, which he did. Yeah. Yes. And he went and in the next eight years he passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And if we had got all the truth out about the Kennedy assassination before that, we might not have had those two acts. <laughs> so you know Truth is a weapon. About. We have to make sure it's used properly. And we can't just worry about the truth and nothing else. We have to worry who's going to use the truth. Will the truth be used in a good way or in a bad way? Because truth can be used in a bad way. I think Trump was uh, at one point, well, I'm pretty sure of it actually, because it involved me a bit. Uh, there were people behind Trump who wanted to use the Kennedy, the truth about the Kennedy assassination to install Trump forever or, or in more, more securely as president. The truth is a weapon and we have to be wise how we, how we use it. Yeah, um, about that, the whole Cuba invasion potential afterwards, uh, Jim Eugenio has been uh, writing a number of articles and he has a new book about this and it gets into the the other plots against Kennedy, and one of them involved, it was set in tam for Tampa, and the person, Leopoldo Lopez, who seems to be analogous to Oswald, he's later involved, and he later makes a trip to Mexico City. I mean, he's in Dallas around the time of the assassination, and he later makes a trip to Mexico City where he leaves to go to Cuba after the fact. So it's, I would wonder if he was being set up to be a potential second shooter or something like that. I mean, it seems uncanny. He had been involved in the Fair Play for Cuba committee. He was part of that plot in Tampa that didn't seem to go off. I mean, they, they may have been really wanting, some people may have wanted to go into Cuba, as you say, and you wonder if Oswald being taken alive bungles that or what exactly, because these are, these are questions that will We've never really been able to figure out. We can only speculate. Well, we know that LBJ, when he was... I don't think Ruby killing him was the plan. After he, after Johnson was sworn in as president of Air Force One, uh, they were flying back to Washington with Kennedy's body. And Bill Moyers, his young aide, said to President Johnson, who was staring out the window of the plane, what are you looking at, uh, President Johnson, uh, with all respect? And he said, I wonder when the missiles are going to start flying. 
so he thought uh, the assassination of Kennedy was a pretext for all-out war. And I think Johnson, to his credit, as Peter was saying earlier, uh, acted heroically, stopped a nuclear war. And I think that some people wanted to use Kennedy's assassination for a full-out war with either Cuba or the Soviet Union or both. I think it was primarily Cuba, but they realized that that could then involve the Soviet Union and they wouldn't mind. It's just like with the Ukraine now. Uh, by the way, I approve of Biden going into Ukraine, but I do not approve of what's happening now because the, 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 ground, the way to get out of Ukraine to have a peace agreement is quite clear. It was almost reached at a meeting in Turkey, I think very shortly after the war began, actually. And, um, and it was America that stopped it. And, uh, and when some people say, well, you know, there's a risk that Soviet Union, Russia would come in, that's what they want. They say this is a way to get to Russia. And we, we are still fighting this sort of thing. And we, uh, and the, and what we do with the truth about the Kennedy assassination is part of a present situation which is not totally unlike the situation Johnson faced in 63. Look, unfortunately, ever since today, we've had one president after the next who's either supplied a war or gone to war themselves. Yeah. And because, well, the, uh, Trump, the only one who didn't is Trump. Now, come on, let's face it. If you ever want to say Trump. a good thing about Trump, he did not exactly. invade the country because he knew it was bad for business. And I think he's right, uh, mm -hmm. bad for the rest of business. Not good for the military industrial complex, but it hurts the rest of business. So uh, JFK set up these warriors and President Biden is captive of them. Look, his own son that he loved, his elder son, Beau Biden, was a victim of imperial wars, wow. uh, a victim of the burn pits, which gave him a rare form of brain cancer. He knows that. President Biden knows that. You'd think if any president would be like Kennedy, would stand up to these warriors who want a war, forever war, somewhere in the globe, it would be President Biden. But he's not. He's their tool instead. He goes along with war in Gaza. He goes along with war in Ukraine. He supplies every weapon virtually that they request, Israel or Ukraine. It's obscene. Kennedy emphasized diplomacy. He emphasized talking to our enemies again and again. We haven't had a president of that stature. Maybe Trump, uh, because he went to Korea. It, you need somebody who's a little bit of an outsider. Exactly. Uh, what I think or, is, or someone with a vision, a peaceful vision. We need somebody with a vision. Yes, it was very depressing to me. You know, when Trump came in, he said, "Oh, I'm going to give the military wealth all they need. They are underfunded." And he came in with a massively increased budget, and that was the year of the so-called do-nothing Congress that they did nothing. Well, it's not true. They did nothing because when that budget got to the Senate and got into committee by a vote of 82 to nine. They increase the budget beyond the massive increases of, of, of Trump. So that gives you an idea of just to what extent uh, we, our Congress is controlled. It, it, it goes back to that terrible Supreme Court decision that allows now unlimited funding. And we have such disparity of wealth. <clears throat> you, democracy cannot thrive when you have the kind of uh, disparity, the number of uh, super 
super billionaires. Musk is on the point of becoming a trillionaire. Um, this is uh, this is fatal democracy. This is what <clears throat> really what did in Rome, by the way. Uh, I agree. Became... The wealth disparity is sabotaging any effort right. we have at having an equitable society. There was a wonderful piece in this Sunday's New York Times all about this. Bidenomics is a farce to most people. Most people in this country live paycheck to paycheck, barely can pay for the rent, for their food, for their gasoline. That's exactly. the real America. And amen, I'm sorry amen. that Bobby Kennedy is the only candidate who realizes that, is saying that now. And Biden is in a bubble. He doesn't realize how people are suffering. I believe the Democratic Party is in great danger because of this uh, refusal to understand the reality that most Americans are living. I want to say one thing. I think it was very important, a book that Rosa Ehrenreich uh, Brooks, the daughter of Barbara Ehrenreich, the uh, socialist uh, journalist, uh, wrote a few years ago. Rosa has served in the uh, Obama administration. She's at Georgetown Law. Uh, but she married a uh, army instructor, an army officer, uh, a few years ago, and she said that military base was spotless that they lived on. It was clean. There were great stores to go to. It was like the America you want. Uh, everything was uh, top quality. As soon as you drove off that base, it was hell on earth. It was Trump's America. It was mm -hmm. like you know, crime. Uh, uh, stores boarded up. Uh, it was falling apart. That's the America that we live on. You live in today. If you live in billionaires' America, it's the gated communities that they live in. It's a wonderful world. If you live on a military base, that's a wonderful world. Everything else is sketchy. I live in San Francisco. Once was a beautiful city. It's now homeless wherever you can uh, see. Homeless on the streets. Uh, uh, stores boarded up. A uh, ghost town downtown. They had recently the apex on it here. It was a farce. It was a Potemkin village because in that, within that range, of course, it was beautiful. They got the homeless out of there and everything. But as soon as you walked a block or two, it's the same uh, uh, dilapidated city. So I believe that we live in two Americas now. Kennedy wanted us to live in one. He wanted to spread the prosperity. He wanted peace. Uh, it's become really, I think, quite hellish. The America that Peter and I were leaving for our children or grandchildren. Uh, I we could make a general point that when both parties are dominated by the oligarchy, by the, particularly the military industrial complex, there's a strong case for an outsider. The trouble is that the entry point for outsiders is um, usually not going to be, it's unlikely to be victory the first time, and then you may get consequences that you don't want. Like that's, that's a dilemma that is faced, and uh, it's not, not specific to Bobby Kennedy, but uh, to uh, the outcome of the 2000 election, um, Nader, and then the, um, the 2016 election with, uh, what's her name, and the Green Party. Uh, Jill Stein and yeah, running again, by the way. Huh. Yes, but I don't think she's going to be as much of a factor this time. So I myself wrote an article 
about the Kennedy assassination and the 60th anniversary for the Kennedy Beacon. And I have a quote here from the end of it, which uh, I'm, I'm hoping can sum it up. And Bryce, if we could use your smooth baritone voice, because, uh, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, it says, uh, quote, we cannot undo the damage wrought by decades of U.S. global imperialism. However, by confronting dark truths, beginning with the JFK assassination, we can begin a process of unwinding the whole imperial enterprise. Make no mistake, the empire cannot be salvaged at this late date. Without the largesse of global empire, America's imperial myths are as untenable as Oswald's magic bullet. As such, it is now clearly in the national interest to disclose the truth of the JFK assassination. What better way to demonstrate that democracy and the rule of law are not mere cover stories for top-down rule? Why shouldn't we look back at people like John F. Kennedy and others who died trying to achieve peace? The work of scholars, researchers, and journalists has served to thoroughly debunk the U.S. regime's account of the JFK assassination. Why not confront the truth of what happened in Dallas as a way to begin making, the tr making true the lies we have been told about the supposedly lawful and democratic United States of America? And this is a you know, very good quote. It's a very good question. It is in the empire's interest uh, for, uh, you know, people to have a coherent understanding of their past. You can't have a society that's completely uh, ran by pulling the wool over people's eyes. I think David said it earlier, treating the public like their children who are unable to confront the realities doesn't do anybody a disservice. And I think about this all the time when you look at, uh, you know, these other countries that have had, you know, inter uh, interstate or factional warfare between parties within the ruling class, you know, they're able to look back on that and understand it clearly. They can say, oh, one of our guys was assassinated by this other guy because of a rivalry in the government. And they're able to confront that and adopt it as part of the national discourse. In America, it's completely different. We hide these sorts of uh, covert activities. We hide these splits within the government. And the media, like, like you said, David, for 60 years have uh, continued to hide it. Uh, so why not confront the truth? Why not, uh, uh, you know, have a, a bit of an American glass nose to let, uh, you know, let the truth come out? Well, because I think, I think the truth that's, that's is volcanic. <laughs> I think it would lead to other questions, and I don't think they want those questions explored or examined. I think uh, there's a reason why for the cover-up. Uh, not to sound too Marxist, but I believe the media in this country, the corporate media, essentially, and this is from years of experience working for them alongside them uh, as a journalist, uh, essentially function as a propaganda arm for the powerful and the wealthy in this country. And I think when you tell a version of history as, I think, uh, volcanic, as, as disruptive, as, as uh, really dark as the Kennedy story, you're threatening uh, a lot. It's uh, as I told the New York Times, Michelle Goldberg in her column wrote this a couple of months ago. I said, it's the telltale heart to invoke the Edgar Allan Poe short story in the heart of American democracy. It's, it's the truth under the floorboards of American democracy. It continues to haunt us as do so many things. Vietnam War, why we got into that war. The war against Iraq, against Saddam Hussein, 9-11. There are all kinds of mysteries that should be confronted. Would the 
as you suggest, be a much healthier society, Bryce? If we confront our past, yes. But there's a reason why we don't. And it has to do with, uh, uh, I think, the American people being told a fairy tale that's useful and to keep them in a very passive state. Well, I think an argument that go ahead, Peter. Well, I was just going to say that I don't think the American establishment really feels very threatened by what uh, David, your book or my book, because you know, groupthink is universal. I experienced it when I was briefly in a, the Canadian Foreign Service, and I realized that to get ahead in the Canadian Foreign Service, you had to think a certain way, and I wasn't that kind of person, so I got out. But it, that's true everywhere. And people need to uh, conform to a certain mindset that they share with other people like them. And, not, and if a truth comes in from outside that threatens that thing, most people will just blanket out that truth. You, know, that, you mentioned that the House Committee on Assassinations way back in 1980, was it? Um, so, they said it was probably a conspiracy. Uh, I don't think it, it affected public opinion a whit, nothing at all. I think that what we should do with the truth is to go at the organs that shape American thinking. I have Wikipedia in mind. You look up Oswald in the first sentence, it says he killed Kennedy, period. You look up Kennedy assassination. By the way, I think there are a hundred close to a hundred million hits on Kennedy assassination on Google. So you cannot pretend that people don't care about it. They care about it, but they're not going to do anything about it because it's, it's going to threaten their way normally live. I think we should focus our energies on getting the truth into Wikipedia, which is read all over the world. And Peter, you're being too Polyash and too cynical. <laughs> Actually, uh, Movies do make a big difference. And so movies, yes, yes. Movies do. Oliver Stone's JFK in 1991 caused such a huge public uproar over the Kennedy assassination. It forced Congress to pass the 1992, as you referred to early, yes. uh, JFK Records Act. So actually, these movies uh, and some cultural things can make a big uh, effect, impact. That's why they suppress them. I've been in Hollywood. I've been in the media. I know they suppress this information. No. Oliver Stone is having a very difficult time telling a dramatic story, a fictional story about Kennedy right now. Uh, Oliver Stone, with all the uh, accolades, all the Academy Awards, all the power he has as a filmmaker, he can't get it made either. So again, again, I think the CIA said quite famously after Oliver's earlier film was released, this will never happen again blaming the Kennedy assassination on government plotters. And they opened an office in Hollywood uh, after that. <laughs> it's been very effective. Every movie, every TV show glorifies the spy service since then. I, I, I defy you, maybe Kill the Messenger, which got dumped by its distributor. No one saw it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's about Gary Webb, it was a great movie. Uh, yeah, I had a role in that movie, yeah. Yeah, other than that movie, I don't think anything has told the truth about the CIA in the last 30 years. So uh, I think they're very effective at controlling communication. And the fact that my story, as measured, uh, as objective, as low-key as it was, 
got spiked by the New York Times last week is another sad indication of where the corporate media is in this country. It well, doesn't you end up it. saying the opposite of what you said at the beginning? Yes, that they, 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 they will fight on the public level. They will fight very hard. I would, I was, was focusing on Wikipedia because, you know, all four of all five of us here have votes in Wikipedia. It's it. There's an sad, Sadly, Wikipedia. The co-founder uh, Wikipedia there, gave an interview to. He gave an interview recently on Glenn Greenwald, the co-founder of Wikipedia. He yeah. said Wikipedia is controlled by the security agencies now, by groups like the CIA and so forth. That's I why Lee that, Harvey Oswald killed Kennedy, according to the Wikipedia. Right. I Wikipedia think the number two contributor to Wikipedia of stories is the CIA. Yes, exactly. Uh, That's uh, true. Wikipedia very but, so we have a tough fight anywhere. Yes. I just think that the odds are more in our favor if if we get to the the institutions that influence public opinion and of course cinema is one of those so i i i i, I grant you what you said about the importance of film um but uh i think well anyway i i, I i've made my point it's it's going to be very difficult but it's going to be what what really we, we do know is happening is that people predicted that you know when the first generation of critics died off, that that, that would be the end of it. Well, it's not been the end of it. The young people still come up, and uh, I, 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 you want to I, know. <laughs> My sons want to know. But but wait, the danger is the Lincoln assassination. That's absolutely clear now. That that. That was obviously a conspiracy from the beginning because two people were shot in two different parts of town at the same time. Had to be a conspiracy. And yet uh, Alan Dulles said, uh, he went to met, came to the Warren Commission and he said, we have to realize that American assassins are different because they always act alone. And that's what <laughs> he said on the very first day of the very first meeting. That's, that's what right. they should come up with. And <laughs> He pointed to the Lincoln assassination, which disproved him right off the bat. <laughs> exactly. He was historically wrong, but he, he was strategically wrong. <laughs> he also inscribed, uh, as we know, the CIA headquarters, and the truth will set, set you free. So he had a sense of humor, a sick sense <laughs> of humor. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I want to get to the, the, the main issue, that the, the heart of what I was trying to argue here. Uh, with this as yet untitled article, but it will come out on the 22nd at the Kennedy Beacon, which is that as much as we want to think that we're going to explain some things to people and, and get them very excited after we elevate their consciousness and they will go out and change these things, I think that the amount of evidence to falsify the official story of it is, is it's overwhelming. As it's beyond a shadow of a doubt at this point, if you're really objective about it, that it was a high-level plot. And it's the only way to explain the, the failure to adjudicate it is that it must be the highest authority in the land. And we don't even know what that is. And that tells us profound things about the society that we live in, that there is a higher authority than presidents. I didn't even mention this, but like if you look back at Nixon trying to argue with Richard Helms about if he could have the JFK files. I mean, that's a remarkable thing that the, that a president would be saying these things to the CIA director who would probably nod politely and then stonewalling, right? So what is that higher that higher power? 
And the bigger issue here that I think may change at all is why was Kennedy killed? The short answer is he wanted to ch turn the U.S. away from empire and more towards the kind of internationalism, a kind of internationalism represented by him, by Dag Hammarskjöld, by people like Henry Wallace uh, in a different sense. I mean, he was really wanting to go undo what a lot of people had put a lot of time and energy into doing, which was essentially taking over global capitalism or the free world or whatever you want to call it. Now, they had opportunities. They were, there were forks in the road at the end of World War II, century of the common man or American century. And then under Kennedy, we saw this uh, burgeoning internationalism such that Malcolm X, even before he was killed, he even says himself, America could be a place with a, a, a peaceful revolution. My mind has been kind of opened up and there were internationalist currents at the time and the Kennedy assassination and the other assassinations of the 60s crushed those. At the end of the Cold War, we could have had a movement towards a more uh, a fair system. That's what Gorbachev wanted. And uh, neoconservatives and, and imperialists won the day. And then they really ramp it up with 9-11. Uh, and we see where this has gotten. It's the empire that they created, that these people created, and that killing Kennedy was in, sense of the, in a sense a defense of this empire. That empire really is falling. And that is, is going to change things in ways that we don't understand. To my mind, Peter, the, because the U.S., if it doesn't have the ability to tell the whole world how it's going to be, it's going to have to rely on symbolism, and, and democracy, democratic myths, and so on. And at that point, it kind of changes the equation uh, for whether you want to keep continuing having this kind of governance. And so I personally think that as you describe these structural deep events, and Kennedy is one of them, and the trend is ever towards more secrecy, more top-down power, and so on, revealing some of these things could be a, a structural deep, a deep event in reverse which would have a salutary effect on the stability of the system when the empire is breaking down. That to me is, is hopeful uh, in tandem with people on the bottoms demanding accountability and demanding truth telling and demanding truth and reconciliation because it seems so clear that that's what we need. It's just that truth and reconciliation in the US is different than in South Africa where you can have truth and reconciliation and really who still who still owns south all the what the riches of south africa it's not the people of south africa so they could do it safely it's going to be more difficult in the u.s but there doesn't seem to be an alternative to my mind this means that the assassination and other crimes like this could be a catalyst for truth and reconciliation and, a, and an acceptance of the fact that the empire is is going but how that comes about i don't know and to get us through this moment we will need some kind of statesmanship to avoid blowing up the world, which is a very real prospect, because that's what the nuclear arsenal was really built to defend, is American hegemony over the globe. And that's going to go away. So are we going to use what we made to defend it, or are we going to about a reality? And this is these are the deeper questions that are totally relevant to the Kennedy assassination, I think. And uh, to me, it, it opens up possibilities, and yet, I feel looking at the actions of the U.S. I, the establishment, I don't think they've come to that conclusion yet that they have to change fundamentally. To me, the most important question is whether there's, there's obviously a great need for change, both in this country and in the world. And uh, there's the change can come peacefully or it can come through war. And to me, the, the clearest issue of all is the change, we must devote all our energies to making sure it does not come 
true war. And that's the problem with the Ukrainian war that that does have the potential of becoming a larger war. And, and, and you could almost say it can't continue the way it is. It's either got to get better or get worse. And the chances of it getting better don't look very good. So I, I, I shudder to think about it, but I think there is a real risk there. And now when we come back to the Kennedy assassination, um, is this going to help or hinder the necessary effort to make sure that the world does not get involved in another world war. And uh, I, 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 I tend to stick to my idea that it, in the short run, uh, getting it to the American people is not going to make much of a difference. It would make a difference if you could get it to the opinion makers, and that's why I think it's very important that David has established these connections. Uh, but I don't see from the evidence of Peter Baker saying what he did or your editor asking you for a column. I don't think that's a very big change. I think the Times is always, I mean, the Times has done good things, you know, like the 1619 project. That was New York Times. And um, I'm very aware of it because the son of a good friend was, was the sponsor of it at the magazine. So we shouldn't despair about this country that has bad elements in it. It has good elements in it too. And uh, we want to use the assassination truth to strengthen the good elements. And I think the, the good elements is the audience for us, not the people, because they will, I, I, I don't want to sound like a snob or condescending, but it's very difficult for somebody who's, as David said, just having to meet the next paycheck to change his life with respect because of something that's discovered about the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, can I just <laughs> sum up? I, I have, unfortunately, I love Peter. I think his upbeat view is very heartening and maybe because he's Canadian, maybe it's his personality. Uh, but I had to say it uh, at 60 years, 60 anniversary of the JFK assassination, I'm very demoralized. I, I think we're headed into very dark times. I think the refusal of the liberal media to acknowledge the truth about this country is very disheartening. And I think their refusal of the New York Times and others to acknowledge what the reality, what most Americans understand about Dallas is very, very uh, depressing. I think again and again, whenever people want change in this country, like the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, like the COP uh, complex in Atlanta, like all the recent protests, they're often disrupted by infiltrators, by police repression, mm -hmm. uh, by gunfire, by militants, freelance militants who have assault weapons and uh, wade into protests with those guns and kill people. I think this country is very violent and very awash in guns. Mm -hmm. And the forces of repression are very powerful. And the refusal of the media to acknowledge basic fundamental truths about this country, except maybe the 1619. We only have to wait 400 years, I guess, for the truth to come out. Uh, six years is not quite enough, apparently. Uh, is really demoralizing. So I think we're up against a very powerful, uh, very angry, very repressive, very violent power structure.
We always have been. <laughs> we, are up, we are up against some really brutal things here, and uh, they will do anything to win. And I think that that is kind of the confrontation between the democratic state and the deep state, even if Peter doesn't want to use that term, is that the Kennedy brothers really tried to largely win democratically, and they did. And Kennedy may have felt like he was the winner and that he was uh, cruising on a victory parade through Dallas, in a sense, in his limo. But uh, he didn't quite get that there was a final boss, if I can put it into video game player terms, which is fascist murder uh, or whatever you want to call it. But there's a veto power of a powerful force that he had not triumphed over, and it made its presence felt in Dallas that day. And uh, America and the world was worse for it. And it's pretty grim to contemplate. But whenever I'm looking at things that are grim, I want to draw some inspiration from people. And I have a quote from Peter here. And he wrote an essay before, I think, the strain of it all, of, of decades or more than a decade working in this realm, kind of led to him having something of a psychic breakdown at, at the time. But he wrote a really brilliant essay where I think he's grappling it and getting close to the heart of the matter. And uh, he writes this at the end, which I think is really relevant to me and hopefully to some of the people listening to this. He wrote, I'm not suggesting that a human challenge to parafascism or whatever you want to, I'll start this again. Yeah, you can start the quote. Let me start, let me start this one again. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that a human challenge to parafascism or the deep state or imperialism, whatever you want to call it, the lawlessness of the international security state, um, is certain to win. I'm suggesting that the process itself is, will be rewarding to those who take part in it, even if the visible outcome is failure, holocaust, or dystopian stultitude. For if the tendency of particular empires is towards rapid ossification and repression, the trend of the human race is still step by tragic step towards individual freedom. For that vital and liberating experience, it is neither necessary nor expedient to wait. And I think this is very relevant to my, uh, to my own approach to trying to deal with these things. And it also brings to mind that I'm very grateful to, uh, to know all of you and to get to work with the, the three of you in the way that we have, whether we make much of a difference or not, or we win in the end, or if we d shuffle off this mortal coil without really knowing whether we will have had any impact on this. To me, it is uh, there isn't anything more important to be doing than trying to fight uh, the apex of the worst forces on our planet. And uh, I'm very thankful to, to be able to do that with you all. And I'm really happy to have uh, been able to have this discussion with you today. So I thank you very much. Before we close, I do want to give Peter a chance to talk about, he has three books coming out because he's been very busy. He's the busiest person in their mid-90s that I've ever known and probably ever will know. Um, Peter, can you tell us about your three books that are, two of them I think are already out and then one of them is coming if I... If no, one, one is out and two are coming. Thank you. Well, the easiest one to talk about is the one that's out, which is about um, a man I published two books with, um, who won the Nobel Prize for Poetry, Czesław Miłosz, who I think was a poet, but also an inspiring model for how to move forward into future centuries. 
Um, and uh, I try to summarize the message that he himself, he was a very complicated person and for any, every, there were two, two forces at work within him. And he said there are two forces at work within everybody, which is a, a theme I pick up on. I think it's true. Um, then I have a book of poetry coming out called Dreamcraft, which is, I was, they required me to summarize it, but I don't believe in my, I don't think you can summarize a poem. Uh, and then the third book is a very ambitious book, which I feel is the most important book that I have ever dared write. And it's much more ambitious than say the American deep state or deep politics and the death of JFK. And it's from the perspective of that book, which is really, how can I sum it up? Saying that our politics stink. They always have, they always disappoint us. But we also have at work in our society as an influence, as, as a force, as a power, we have our culture. And uh, it's culture that determines the future of politics. Like, quote John Adams, I have in a couple of books really, that John Adams said, the revolution, the American Revolution wasn't the war, it was changing American minds before the war. And um, that's what I'm trying to do in this book. And I'm saying specifically that a lot of the political problems and also cultural problems, we have those too in this, in this world, um, are from the, uh, the illusion that American that the world progress was taking us away from the past and the key to future development was to forget the past. And I am arguing against that, that if we want a healthy movement forward, we have to retain and recover our memory of the past. And particularly I'm trying to recover the memory of what's often dismissed as the Dark Ages, which I say was a very healthy, important improvement on the Roman Empire. Um, the Roman Empire, if you wanted an afternoon's entertainment, you went off and watched people being killed. That's, that, that, is, that is a civilized habit, which was terminated, terminated by the barbarians. Now we have the NFL, Peter. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I actually make that point in the book. I do, I do t take time off to talk. Well, what was it Jackson, the one member who was from the Detroit Lions who was killed on a game and they continued the game? Yeah. Uh, yes, um, that's, that's not getting the scope of my book. The book, the book is such an ambitious book, it's very hard to summarize. But I'm saying, yes, you know, we talk politics and we get depressed. If you talk culture, and uh, there are setbacks, and we have some very retro movements now, uh, MAGA and so on, and ISIS, um, you know, there's a, a lot, Hamas, there are a lot of uh, negative developments that you can focus on, but the, the long course of it, I agree with Martin Luther King here, the long course on the cultural level is a good course, and if we can ally ourselves with that, that good course, we will get that even more of that pleasure of work that I was talking about in the essay I'd forgotten about. Thank you for resurrecting that, Erwin. I was quite inspired to read that. <laughs> I didn't realize I'd written it. <laughs>
Yeah, it's a great one. And uh, David, any uh, any final words here before we uh, we wrap up this segment? Yeah, I, I hate to be the wet blanket today because I share some of Peter's optimism about the future. But See, I should be the optimist, the, the, the pessimist, and then you could have ended being the optimist. Those yeah, are the two well, forces. Well, well uh, pessimism of the intellect, uh, optimism of the will. But right. uh, I, yes, because uh, the way that the establishment has related to, has responded to the uh, 60th anniversary of JFK, I feel very despondent lately and very angry uh, and frustrated. Uh, and not just uh, the press, but Hollywood also, uh, that they want us to believe these fairy tales. So uh, stop believing in them. Uh, listen to podcasts and say it like this one. I think the truth is out there. The truth is in blogs and podcasts and conferences and in papers and books like Peter's and mine and Aaron's. And uh, so seek those out. Well, here on the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination, I want to thank David Talbot and Peter Del Scott for joining us today. Bryce Green and I will return to uh, have a, a short wrap up here. But uh, gentlemen, it was really an honor to be able to do this uh, on this day. It was great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for making this happen. Bryce, as we close this episode out here on the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination, uh, now that David and, and Peter are are gone, I think that we have a chance to talk about uh, some of your experiences and your reflections on this day. So you and I, you're younger than me, and I'm younger than David and Peter. Uh, tell me how you, as a younger person, I mean, you're still in your 20s, um, how did you become interested in the Kennedy assassination? And what do you think of the, is the significance of the event uh, on this momentous anniversary? Yeah. Um, and, and we've talked a bit about this before, but it's always just interesting to look back and see the, the phase transition I've been through over the last couple of years. You know, like you said, I'm still in my 20s, 25. And, and some people by, at this age, they don't even have their idea of who they are and like who their politics are, like what they believe and how they want to change the world or whatever. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to have, you know, had that revelation a little bit ago, uh, you know, had the political turn at, in college when I got really political uh, and really leftist. But uh, as part of any leftist uh, education, you're going to need to learn about the history of covert operations, you know, the CIA, you know, what they did in Iran, Guatemala, in uh, all these other places around the world over and over again. Uh, you start learning about the the way the covert world interacts with the American empire. And so what I was doing is I was just picking up books, learning about the CIA, uh, learning about all these escapades in the past. You learn about the assassination plots and, you know, the, the poison master, all that stuff. But then I pick up David Talbot's book, Devil's Chessboard. I'm like, oh, Alan Dulles. Heard a lot about this guy, CIA director. A real son of a bitch. Let's dig in. Little did I know that the last third of the book was dedicated to the Kennedy assassination. And I hadn't really thought about the Kennedy assassination much. I mean, I just had the conventional wisdom. Like, I knew who Lee Harvey Oswald was. And I knew about the uh, Texas School Book Depository. Uh, but that's really all I knew. And I knew he was killed by Jack Ruby. But that's really all I knew. And so I was reading this book. And... Uh, I get to this part where he's talking about the assassination. I'm like, wait, what? Is this true? 
is this is this real? I was looking at the, the citations. I was like, whoa, okay, well, I'll tell you what, at the, the very least, they did something and hid something. And I was like, well, I don't I'll never get to the bottom of this. I'll never it's too it's too deep, too too in depth. But then shortly after I finished that book, I came across the title of JFK and the Unspeakable. Someone had just like brought it up on Twitter. I don't know who it was. Uh, and I was like, oh, JFK. Okay, you know, that sounds that's a cool title. I'll check out this book. And so then I read the book and uh, that really opened my eyes. I was like, well, it links this idea of empire, of Vietnam, of Cuba, all to these. And it was, you know, told in a two-track way. You had uh jack kennedy story and then he had oswald story and the way it put together was uh, it was very in-depth and it was very convincing and uh, i just couldn't stop reading after that you know uh, went through mark lane's books went through uh, uh gaten fonzie's book went through uh, all, all the, great. yeah it's great uh, like, totally all these unique books. because of yeah what his role was but it's really it's a entertaining funny sad infuriating yeah, exactly. Like, like I don't know that that story about like Claire Booth loose, just like, uh, like yanking his chain, like giving him a false story, and then sending and him on a cloud. Too, like those yeah, two, those two crazy women messing with his mom. <laughs> yeah, and all these all these stories, and so you learn more about that. And I didn't even see the movie JFK until I had read uh, JFK and the Unspeakable, and I was like, wow, like we know so much. It's ridiculous how this has evaded me. And I consider myself an educated person, you know, like I know what I'm talking about when I talk about history, but it had eluded me for this long, went through all of college without, you know, hearing about it in detail. Uh, but just that process of being able to dramatically alter the course of history and, you know, you leave all these footprints, but no one connects them. Uh, that to me was astounding. And so then you start learning about these, the, the idea of deep events and, uh, like deep politics and the history of all this stuff. And it just becomes, I don't want to say a rabbit hole because of the connotations, but it, it it's a, it's a field. It's a discipline uh, of all the, all these connecting tissues of all these events and the, you know, the, the role of American empire in shaping them. And uh, that's always been extremely helpful. Yeah. I have benefited greatly from working with uh, and, and reading people's, uh, research and findings on the subject and they were they informed what I came to believe about this as well uh, Peter Peter is really brilliant you know building on the work of old and other people in terms of uh, theorizing about the deep state I mean his explanation of the deep political system and he wants to call these things different titles and he was calling it a meta system now which is I mean, it makes sense they're all imprecise and so I, I will say deep state or empire or oligarchy or just fascism. And I, I do think that that generation, there's a reluctance to, I don't, I don't, I grew up when I came of age, not even when I came of age, when I, the first political memories I have are under Reagan. And that allowed me to understand that there was a dark force at the top of the U.S. and that it wasn't the good guys winning, the bad guys won oftentimes. And they were for the rich and they did horrible things overseas, like with Iran-Contra and all that. My mom worked for a Democratic congressman at the time, and she was anti-Reagan, so at least I learned that. And I never really had any of the um, USA, USA kind of mania that, that I think if you grew up or in the shadow of World War II or if you lived through World War II like Peter did. I mean, Peter was in, Peter flew to Germany 
after the war had ended and you could smell he said that you could smell the decaying bodies and and burning uh rubble and and so on uh, in germany so he's old enough to have lived through that and the cold war as well there's a socialization that i think is really powerful and it's just hard to wrap your mind around the idea that like the main negative force in the world is imperialism and it's been the west collectively the two world wars or what's driven by right here at home and right now it's the u.s and it's really coming to a head as people like russian diplomats and, and putin are saying the u.s is responsible for every for all the ills in the world uh more or less like all these conflicts and all these things that are holding us back from being able to solve problems it's the u.s china is saying similar things that the u.s can either go for this zero-sum imperial mentality or we can work together constructively it's all these same issues that Kennedy was dealing with. That's what's amazing to me 60 years later. And the U.S. is still in that position. And if you're thinking, why? Why after Ukraine and Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Syria, and now we're seeing this slaughter in Gaza, what, why is there no course correction? And then you think, well, because if you try to correct, do issue a course correction, then you end up like JFK. And most people don't want that unless they're trying to kill themselves. Yeah, uh, you you end up like JFK or uh, or someone like JFK just never has the opportunity to get there just because you get people. Sense. Yeah, you just get Reagan after Reagan after Reagan after Reagan. Uh, then you get the black Reagan. Uh, maybe one day we're going to have a woman Reagan, but it's all the same. Like, And the fact that the this hasn't permeated into like our political education is, I mean, just it's just astounding. Like, why, why is it that you know, all of these, uh, all these articles can be written uh, about, I, I was just looking at, you know, that old article in the Washington Post after the House Select Committee on Assassinations came out with their, uh, uh, with their conclusion that there was a, at least one more shooter. Uh, and then uh, the, the Washington Post is like, well, could it have been that someone else at the same time tried to assassinate the president? Maybe. Could Oswald have, you know, maybe picked up two or three compatriots who were equally as disaffected maybe uh, like wh what is this like but that's the sort of mental logic that really persists now uh, in this sort of you know top-down media environment where people don't think to ask questions like that where people don't uh, people aren't people are just discouraged from asking questions people are discouraged from getting into politics if they have any serious critique and people at the highest level i mean they're all you know they're all part of the oligarchy so uh, nothing nothing structurally changes right this part is uh there was somebody on you know some social media thing somewhere that was saying uh we really got to root out all of the you know psychopath individuals in the system and to my my thought to it uh, of that was that well the issue is that you the system itself demands that these people be act this way and so if you've got to earn a paycheck to be a certain way you're going to be that way that's like if any, any understanding of capitalism and how it works and how the market works whatever need you have or whatever there's money in you can buy if you have enough of it and that's kind of a horrifying thing uh but there are ways and people can override the law and that inner logic that internal logic is what shapes uh is what shapes humanity like the beyond like the individual psychopaths or the occasional uh, 
you know, Bill Harvey or like whatever, whatever lunatic CIA character you want to, you know, push. It's the fact that these people are enmeshed within a system of logics and institutions that demand that behavior. And it's beyond them. Uh, if you look at the, uh, you know, the, it's like, well, who would you, who would you, uh, you know, arrest or imprison to make the world better? Like, how big would that list have to be for things to change? It's like, well, that doesn't matter. You could get rid of Jamie Dimon, Jeff Bezos, Larry Fink, uh, all these people, Joe Biden, all of these people. Uh, but there's a thousand, tens of thousands of them waiting in the wings. And, uh, you know, they're all willing. To, and in terms of the media, this, this applies to the military industrial complex, the media, the White House, like all these institutions. Uh, and in the case of the media, the people who advance in those areas, the people who get these editorial positions and the people who, uh, you know, try to get them uh, are the people who will ignore obvious evidence of uh, a major conspiracy. They're the people who will might let their editor ask David Talbot to write a an op-ed, but they won't allow him to actually publish it in that paper. Uh, that that's those are the sorts of people who shape America, and those are the people at the heart of what this what this American fascism, this top-down authoritarianism, uh, what it demands. Yes, this is really a downer. That that, that is the system. However, I do take heart as I said earlier, in the fact that, I, that they are losing now. And this, I think, is something that even people on the left have a hard time totally conceptualizing. Just how bad, because the situation domestically, politically in the U.S. is so bad, and because some of these things that we see are so terrible, like Ukraine and, and Gaza, I mean, half, part of the left is still like, oh, if only we'd supported, I don't even know what they, these people who are still like somehow supportive of like Ukraine on the left, if you can call it that, what they think they possibly could have done any differently. I think that they just don't want to admit that they were wrong for whatever reason. They but, don't know. They can't uh, they can't assimilate the fact that uh, the U.S. literally blocked a peace agreement both before and after the war started. Uh, that, that doesn't factor into their thinking. So they're like, well, they can't look at Maidan either. They can't yeah. And they can't look at Maidan. Yeah. And now there's even more that's come out of that with like. A trial in there that, that yeah. said yes, the snipers actually were firing from the um, Maidan, the protesters areas the protesters controlled. I mean that should that should be huge news. It's not. The, yeah, that should be Bob. Sh that that should be floating around on the New York Times page or whatever. Like that's a major thing, and they covered it. They covered it extensively. In fact, the New York Times they put Maidan, out like these three D the models. Uh, the well, the protest and the snipers massacre, and they yeah. they pushed the. Like official story, the, the New York Times published that 3D model that uh, purportedly uh, blamed the the Yanukovych's like security forces. Uh, of course, if, uh, as Kachanovsky has shown in his work, all those they literally just move the wounds on some of these protesters. And if you go look at the the data, they actually cite the correct data. They just move it on the models, <laughs> but uh, like. This is the sort of thing we're talking about. Like the fact that they can do this, they can wipe out this history, uh, is is a level of power. And then get people purportedly on the left who have been, you know, misled on their history to support some of the most insane policies. Like I, I still remember those close the skies rallies. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, like they they were advocating for people for American uh, like Air Force to start bombing the Russian Air Force. Yeah. That's insane. That's they're but, advocating that's the, for nuclear doomsday. Yeah, that's doomsday. They're getting that's out there over. demanding that their leaders end the world. 
Yeah. But that's the level of propaganda we are. If they can kill Jack Kennedy in broad daylight uh, under, you know, conspicuously suspicious circumstances. What was, it, what was the line from the movie? And the organs of justice fa- uh, scarcely deign to move or whatever. <laughs> but yeah. they, like, they can do that. They, they can do that and they can do it over and over again. And they can ensure they can rely on the media and the academia and everyone here to just go along with it. Well, we at Devil's Chess Club are not going on, going to uh, go along with that. We're not going to take it anymore. And so we're going to keep issuing content that will inform people about the dark realities of the regime that dominates us in much of the world. And we do think that its time is, is limited and its days are numbered. And that uh, this uh, country will have reform thrust on it one way or another. And I don't know what that's going to be and what it's going to look like. I hope that it's positive reform and not more in an overtly fascist way. But time will tell. Uh, Today, I want to thank again for Died Trying for uh, bringing this episode to the public on this uh, historic anniversary. If you would like to subscribe to American Exception to support the work that we do, we are on Patreon. Devil's Chess Club is an American Exception production. Uh, we want to thank Dana Chavaria for producing this. Uh, and also Michelle Boley and Casey Moore are doing graphics and uh, the design for video uh, animation intros and such that we hope will be in effect when this issue episode comes out. If not, they're coming shortly. Uh, so... Uh, Bryce, any last words here before we sign off? Uh, no, just uh, do your reading. <laughs> read read the real history, and uh, it'll uh, explain a lot of our current situation. If you don't, you'll be dazed and confused and wondering how we got here every day. That's right, everyone. Listen to Professor Green, who is telling you that you had better do your reading or there will be consequences. <laughs> uh, with that said, uh, thank you very much, everyone, for supporting us. Do check out Four Die Trying at fordietrying.com. It'll be available on uh, Apple TV on no- uh, November 22nd. Today, it should be available now unless something crazy has happened. And uh, look, I look forward to hearing what people have to say about that film, the initial one and the other ones that follow because they put a ton of work into that. So do check that out. Uh, for David Talbot and Peter Dale Scott, I'm Aaron Good uh, signing off. Peace, everybody. Peace.